And as you guys are sitting down, if y'all have phones or Bibles, you can open them. We're going to look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. If we haven't met, hello. My name is Doug. I'm the Young Adults Pastor. If you're a first-time visitor or guest with us or second time, welcome back. I think you should have gotten a, a little kind of half sheet of paper there to, to work on some some things with some notes in it. I'll get to that in a second, but let me just start with this. Occasionally, we will hold this up this season because what God's challenging us with is the, the idea that the table and our gathering is meant to be a banquet for the broken. Uh, you guys may have seen a very nice jar that gets painted over, and what we're here to say, or one of the things we're here to say is, hey, all of us are broken, and we don't run from this. In fact, we embrace the fact that we're all broken, and instead of painting over ourselves, we say we're going to just live in our brokenness because the light of Jesus wants to shine in us through the cracks to be the light of the world. It's one of the ways, the beautiful ways that Jesus uses all of us in Orlando. And so one of the ways we practice being a banquet for the broken and one of the ways we practice our brokenness uh, is in the way that we build relationships. And one of the ways that we minister to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers is in being able, as you guys may know, uh, being able to field and begin to, to discuss difficult questions. I don't know if you've ever been in one of these situations where you meet in a coffee shop. Uh, maybe you're the Christian that somebody knows. Maybe you've had the pleasure of that opportunity where your neighbor, your friend, someone at the gym, whatever is like, hey, you're a Christian. Can I ask you a few questions? It's always a dicey situation, right? Because uh, you just know they're going to start with a really hard topic. They're going to be like, talk to me about politics. You're like, oh, no, right? So you sit down, and they ask you hard questions, and sometimes you're just like, oh, that's a great question. One second. Hey, Siri, what is the meaning of life? Right? Cool. Just one second. I need to go to the restroom, and then you come in, and uh, there you go, right? But hard questions come up in our relationships because we're people who proclaim to have the truth because Jesus is the truth. And so in this series we've been in over the last four weeks, we've been dealing with the big four hard questions, the questions we build our worldviews around. And if you've been with us or if you haven't, you can check out the podcast. But the questions have gone in this order. Number one, who am I? Or really, what am I? What am I made of? And the answer that the Bible gives us is that we are human beings, not human doings. We are beings made in the image of God, and as such, God has given us inherent value and worth. Meaning, if you're here today and you have two eyeballs uh, in your body, um, God has given you inherent value. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Uh, you don't have to get a job and prove it. When God looks at you at the end of the day, he is entirely pleased because he sees himself in you. We are human beings not human doings. And our doing flows from the fact that we have our being and who God is. Question number two, uh, where did I come from? The question of origin. And the answer the Bible gives us, especially in Genesis, is you are, we are creatures made by God who is our creator. And therefore, we as creatures turn to our creator and say, how should we live in this world you've created? We get all our directives from him. That was week two. Last week, we looked at what is the meaning of life and the answer we came to from Jesus and from others in the New Testament is that meaning is found as we learn to love God and love others. And really, loving others is summarized neatly in this idea of ministry. Really, meaning in life is found as we learn to do ministry, whether that's professional ministry or whether that's bivocational or whether it's just you're going to learn to integrate ministry into your life and you're going to be the most overqualified Sunday school teacher and life group leader that's ever existed, right? Um, 
However you learn to do ministry, you learn to lay down your life for one another. That is the best, highest form of love. It's the thing that God has designed us for. It's the purpose for which we were created, to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in light of all of that, we now come to the final question. And it's the question that uh, many of us have thought about at some point, and it's the question of death. What happens to me after I die? Does anything happen to me after I die? And I recognize this is a, this is a rather weighty topic. Uh, and so I just want to try to speak to that right up front by just talking about my own experience with this topic. Uh, I remember the first time I started thinking about death. Uh, I was in sixth grade, and on the first day of sixth grade, uh, my cousins and my aunt, who I was very close to, my cousins were probably my best friends in all the world, they were killed in a terrible car crash. And this is first grade. I come home, I mean, the first day of sixth grade, I come home, I hear about this, and uh, it's one of the few times in my life I've ever heard my dad cry. And I remember where I was, we were in a rent house at the time, and I was in this bedroom, this little kind of bedroom situation, and I just remember my dad crying, and then I, it was about 30 minutes before my parents walked in to deliver the news to me, uh, and I just remember being stunned because it was the first time I'd had to really wrestle with the idea of death. It's the first time I ever saw someone that I knew and loved who, who passed away. And I remember becoming terrified of death from that moment forward. And if I can be really honest with you today, I still am pretty terrified of death to the extent that about once every six months, I have a death panic attack in the middle of the night. Uh, you guys ever had one of those? It's the one where you're sleeping and you just shoot up and you go, <gasps> like this in the middle of the night. Um, just spoiler alert, when you get married and you have a death panic attack, uh, especially if you're a husband, there's a whole protector thing that kicks in because I, I remember I did this about two months ago. I woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. And my wife woke up and she was like, what's going on? And I was like, uh. <laughs> I was like, uh, sorry, I was just coughing. Coughing, I didn't mean coughing. I wasn't thinking about death. Uh, I was coughing. Oh boy, just, we're good, Natalie. Just go back to sleep. And she's like, okay, that was really weird. And I was like, yeah. But I'm telling you guys, I, when I think about death and I really think about it, it freaks me out. And so there's a sense in which I want to avoid thinking about the topic. I, I don't want to, I don't want to ever consider it. I want to see if I can distract myself from it. That's partially why when I consume media, when I turn on Netflix, I never want to watch shows that are too serious. Uh, like some, some people are like, hey, dude, have you ever watched Breaking Bad? I'm like, no, that's too intense. I don't do death and violence. I just, mm-mm, no. It's like Parks and Rec all the time in my house, right? Parks and Rec, the West Wing, and I'm good, right? And that's pretty much what I do. And partially it's because I am so cripping, cripplingly afraid of death. Now, I'm not afraid of dying, and I'm not afraid of the afterlife, but there's that hole in between where I'm like, I don't know what that experience is like. And there's no way you can get prepared for that. And so that's just kind of freaking me out here. And I don't know, maybe that's you today. You know, when we hear these reports that come from climatologists about the way the world's going to change, and I don't know if they're right or wrong, but I'm just telling you when I hear in 2030, we're going to hear this tipping point and da, 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 and the you know, average temperature. And I start freaking out a little bit here. And maybe you do too. Or maybe you have a friend who gets cancer and you start freaking out a little bit. I, I, I remember at one point I started getting this weird pain in my side and I got on WebMD, which is like the worst thing you can do. You guys know what I'm talking about? And I was like, oh no, this is, this is a terminal disease. Like I just know it. And I start typing in my symptoms and like pain inside and it's like 
do you have blonde hair? I was like, yes, I do. Whoa, uh oh, this is crazy. Like, do you have blue eyes? Yes. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. You probably have the bubonic plague and you're going to die. And I was like, oh, right. Web, WebMD never takes you to like, you're fine. Just walk it off. WebMD is always the worst case scenario. But anytime that happens, I start thinking about death and it freaks me out. And I want to say all that and just confess before you with a little bit of levity that I, I, I actually really struggle with this idea. And my suspicion is that most of us probably do too. So in light of that, way up front as your pastor, I want to just be a pastoral here today by, by taking a, a pretty profound uh, position on the subject of death as it relates to a theology of death from Jesus' Bible. And here's what it is, and it's in your bulletin. It's this, it is important for Christians to meditate on death. I think it's important for Christians to meditate on death. Augustine, Francis of Assisi, other great Catholic teachers regularly thought about death and meditated upon their own death. Uh, and they did this for a number of important reasons, and I'll just list three or four of them. The first one is not in your bulletin, but it may be on the screen or it may not be on the screen. But number one, just keep in mind, death is, um, death is universal. Uh, it's, it's, in a sense, undefeated. Everyone dies. Everyone experiences death. And so why would we never think about something that is so universal to everybody? And this is number one. That's actually a zero. Number one, that's just on your screen, is death is a key biblical concept. Um, you look in the Bible, Bible, the Bible talks about death all the time. And so having a clear referent of what death means theologically and significantly uh, is key. Number two, death plays a significant role in our worship corporately and individually. At Easter, we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which at the resurrection, Jesus not only put a death to sin, he put death to death itself. And so if we don't understand death, and if we don't talk about death, and we don't consider the significance of death, it limits us from the expression of our worship and bringing glory to who God is. It plays a crucial role in our worship. Finally, death helps us to center back on our priorities in life. Have you ever noticed someone, do you ever, maybe you have a friend or relative who had a near-death experience. Um, we had a pastor recently, our legacy adult pastor, Chris Whaley. Um, he was driving on the turnpike, and his car caught on fire. And it stopped the turnpike, and he, he's like a former professional athlete. He was a professional wrestler. Like, he wrestled The Undertaker and things like that. He's really cool. Anyway, but because he's a super good athlete, even though he's, you know, a little bit older, he, like, crawled out of the car and all that stuff as his car consumed, you know, in flames and charred itself. It was crazy. And, you know, in talking to him, I'm going, like, what are you thinking about? Like, uh, like in light of that, what are you thinking? And he's like, it puts my priorities in, back in place. Have you never ever known anybody who went through a near-death experience? Like, you meet them, they're kinder, they're gentler, they have more patience. They spend time with you, they lock eyes, and you're like, man, what's changed about you? They're like, listen, thinking about death it put all my priorities back in place. Thinking about death, one of the reasons Christians have practiced this as a spiritual discipline is because it tends to recenter us on what's really important in life. I'm no longer thinking about that Netflix show I've got to binge later, right? I'm no longer frustrated that, you know, I sent way too many text messages last month, right? I understand what my priorities need to be. And so I think it's crucially important for us to do this, to think about this. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to look at scripture, what it says about death, and in particular, what happens to us after we die. But there are three questions I, I want us to answer here on the philosophy of death and dying. 
Um, and you can write them down if you want to or just kind of make note of them. Number one, what happens to me when I die? It's the question of eternity. So once I die, what happens with existence? Number two, what in life can prepare me or prevent me from dying well? It's the question of priority. Is there anything I'm doing now that actually can cause me to die poorly? Can I think about that? Number three, is there any correlation between this life and any kind of afterlife experience? The question of spirituality, also known as the question of, uh, uh, well, question of spirituality is what we'll call it. And so I want to attempt to answer those three questions here, and I think this slice of Scripture answers them uh, pretty well. And so if you have your Bibles, and I know they're open to Matthew 25, you guys can read with me. This is Jesus talking. I wanted to know, Jesus, what did you say about this? How did you answer this question? And fortunately for us, Jesus brings a lot of wisdom to this. And here's what he says, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheeps or sheep from the goats. It's not plural there. So, sorry about that. That's, I'm from East Texas, and we just add stuff. Um, verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but on the, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger welcome you or naked and clothe you? You'd kind of remember that, right? I mean, you get the point. You're like, uh, I don't know if I ever saw you naked. Like, I feel like that would be a significant experience, but okay. Um, verse 39. Um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 40. Uh, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to, the, uh, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. <clears throat> for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, welcome me naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is a pretty straightforward parable, kind of a story on the teaching of the right and the left, the people headed for eternal life and those headed for eternal punishment. Implications on this life that we live now, but also the life to come afterwards. Um, every so often Jesus will get apocalyptic about things and have these conversations, and this is indeed one of them. And I think there are three things we can observe about this passage as it relates to our questions. And so I want you to notice this. Number one, there seems to be two post-death post realities. There seems to be two post-death realities. And one of those is what we would, can understand as heaven or eternal life or the kingdom of Jesus. These are all synonymous terms. He says, you who did this, you get eternal life. Uh, and this is something we understand as heaven 
It's, it's the place that where, king, where Jesus reigns and his kingdom is fully understood. Oftentimes I get the question, like, what is heaven? Like, what can I think about it? Is this streets of gold? Um, you know, is there a similar virgin sex situation here? Like with my Muslim friends, like how does this all work? Like we get, and these are all fine questions. In general, what I think Jesus is saying here is just imagine this. It's constantly this worship service. You're just constantly just singing and praising and having fellowship and communion and it's fun. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's just this great thing. It is an eternal kind of life. It is life at its fullest, the most um, exhilarating experience you've ever had, the best day you've ever had, don't think about the amplification of that. Think about the perfection of that, because that's heaven. And Jesus says, this is one of those realities. It's heaven. The other one is this. It's hell, or eternal punishment, or the kingdom of evil. And when we think about this, uh, it seems to be something where there's eternal punishment. It's not a pretty picture. It's the, the picture we get of this in the New Testament is there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. There's these fiery images. And if you remember, there's three categories of being. There's God being, there's angelic being, and then there's human being. Well, it seems that what happens as God wraps up all of this created time is that he's going to take the bad angelic beings, Satan and his uh, demons, and he's going to toss them into hell. And then there seems to be an opportunity for all of these human beings to make their way into hell. And there it's going to be a kingdom of evil. Now, if you aren't up on your platonic philosophy, uh, evil is really the absence of something. It's non-substance. Uh, it's non-value. It's non-existence. It doesn't exist. And what you can think of is it's like darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. And so very likely hell is a very dark place because there's no light there, or at least light doesn't go there. Um, or you can think about it like this. You guys ever been to a state fair before, like a, state, a, a fair carnival situation, and you get cotton candy? You guys know what cotton candy is? Do we still eat cotton candy? Is that allowed? I don't know what millennials eat, right? But you get the cotton candy or maybe the funnel cake. Is funnel, are we a little closer with funnel cake? You guys get this? Um, okay, these are empty calories, you get what I'm going with this? Like, if you have an option and it's like Skittles or steak, right? One of these is like really good calories and one of these is empty calories. And basically what Jesus is saying is this eternal life where people are going called hell, this is empty calories. You eat, you eat, you eat, and you're never satisfied. It never satisfies you because it's emptiness. It's the absence of substance. And there are these two realities. And so Jesus sets that up. The second thing we can observe there is... The way in which we live this life will be made permanent in eternity. The way that we live this life right now gets made permanent in eternity. Now, let me say what I mean by this or what I think the Bible means by this and what I, I don't think it means by this. Um, if you guys have ever taken a math class, you know that there's this thing called a ray. Okay, Do you guys remember back into basic math, the ray? It has a definite starting point and then a line that stretches on into eternity, okay? Well, basically, Jesus' conception of eternal life is that we kind of start it at some point. When we are born again, when he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us, right, um, he starts this eternal life in us. And so it's something we actually begin to experience a little bit now here as in heaven, which is why we sang that song. Shout out to Jason, right? Uh, we experience it now, 
but then he makes it certain into life. And so if you think about it, someone who says, Jesus, I want to follow you in their earthly life. And we say that, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. Every day we wake up, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow you. By the time we get to our end of this life, Jesus just goes, you know what? I'm going to make that permanent. Boom. And that's forever, right? On the converse, the people who say, I don't want to follow you. 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 By the time they get to their life, he goes, okay, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to force you to love me, right? And so I'm going to acquiesce to your demands and I'm going to make that permanent. And then it's permanent for their eternal life. And so hell is simply a place where people who with everything in their life have told Jesus consistently, I want to resist your overwhelming, satisfying love. I want to resist it. I don't want it, Jesus. I don't want it. He goes, fine, I'm going to make that permanent. And so this eternal kind of life that we, we are provided, either way, either pathway, is something that's, that Jesus makes permanent given the way in which we live our present life. That seems to be the thing that he says here. And then the third thing is this. The best indicator of your salvation and of your eternal destination is your practice of hospitality. Now, this is the thing I found most interesting about this passage. The one key spiritual habit of people who are on their way to heaven, it's not how much Bible do you know, and it's not uh, how much money do you give to a local charity or a church, and it's not how do you vote, and it's not what do you think about Christian music, and it's not even the type of tattoos you get, right? It's hospitality. Look back at what Jesus says here. He says, the, the people are shocked they're in heaven. So just imagine this. You wake up and you're in the good place. But like if you've seen the show, it's the real good place, not the fake good place. Sorry, spoiler alert, right? But um, you're in the good place and you're like, wow, like I made it here? Whoa, I mean, I got to be on that one test one time. So I just thought maybe it was, in, it was in jeopardy, but man, I'm in here. And you're walking in heaven and everyone's like, dope, right? Everywhere you go, it's just amazing. And you, you imagine you go up to Jesus and you go, man, Seriously, dude, I got to know, because I was a little iffy on myself. Like, how did I end up here? And Jesus goes, well, when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I needed clothing, you gave it to me. And when I was sick, you visited me. And that one time that I was in prison, you came and, you know, when, when, I, when I got, I mean, Jesus would never do this, right? But in this way, like that one time I kind of was in jail and I needed someone to get bailed out, like you came and you visited me. And that person is like, I don't remember doing this to you. Now think about it. Who doesn't remember doing this kind of stuff? Who is doing this stuff so regularly that they don't remember a specific time where they did it from a Jewish guy from Nazareth, right? This is the kind of the person who's here. Like you're like, wait, wait, feeding you, clothing you, going to visit you when you're sick or you're in jail. These are all hospitality type things, right? When you feed or give someone drink, that's hospitality. And this guy's doing it so often, or these people are doing it so often, they can't specifically remember a time when they did that for Jesus. This is the kind of person here. This is a person who is regularly living in this lifestyle of hospitality. And Jesus is saying, this is the very demonstration of the gospel that in many respects confirms whether you're truly saved and it's the thing that predicates your being in heaven, that you practice hospitality. Alec put it this way earlier and I thought it was really great. The difference between heaven 
and hell is hospitality. The difference between heaven and hell is hospitality. Because on the other side, you have all these people who die and they look around. They're like, it's dark here. Uh Uh-oh. Like, it's that like five seconds after you, you open your eyes, there's no light. And there's like a little fire over there, but it's somehow burning darkly. And you're like, oh, this isn't good, right? Um, it's just, you're, you're not in a good situation here. Oh, Carmina Burana, the like, you know, Latin mass song is playing. And you're like, this isn't good. You're like, uh-oh, right? It's like constantly Halloween, Halloween horror nights at Universal everywhere. And like, I don't know, and a demon walks up to you and you're like, bro, Like you look at people and they're like terrible, right? It's just a bad day because everyone knows. And you're like, bro, how did I get here? And it's like, you you didn't practice hospitality. Like you just, you didn't practice hospitality with Jesus. And they're like, I didn't practice hospitality with regularity. So that makes sense, right? I mean, I, I have no excuse. This is the issue here. And I find this to be such an interesting concept when you think about it. What is it about hospitality that seems to indicate that we are truly believers? And what is it about hospitality that somehow has connection to our eternal life? And so what I want to do is just think about this idea of hospitality together in some practical application type ways and just see if we can see how just practicing hospitality gives us actually a framework for putting the gospel and the truth of scripture into regular daily practice and to see if somehow that might tip the scale towards making heaven come to earth here now so that Jesus can make that happen in eternity. This is a fairly complex topic, but let's just, let's have a mental exercise here uh, for the sake of levity at the very end. So here's the thing. I want to I wanna observe the five key habits of kingdom hospitality that Jesus seems to mention here. And if the difference between heaven and hell is hospitality, well, man, what do I need to do today to, to think about practicing Because, again, let me say this up front. I'm not saying if you do these things, you're going to go to heaven because you did these things and achieved something. Remember, we don't work towards the cross. We work from the cross. But what I am saying is I think if you think about these things and if you really consider them, and if you're a believer who's here today, you're going to find that your heart desires this, and Jesus is going to provide plenty of opportunities for you to begin practicing this. And my suspicion is you're already doing some or most of these things already, okay? So let's just look at these five key habits. Number one, you buy somebody a drink. You buy somebody a drink. So uh, you guys all know this. You're at work or whatever, and you just have one of those days at work where you're just like, I got to get out of here. And they give you your 30-minute break or your 15-minute break or whatever. And you walk to the coffee place or you drive to the coffee place. And you're just like, everyone in my office is the worst. Ugh. And you go in and you get your, you, know, you order your coffee and you come back and you sit down uh, and you drink it. And you're like, I'm glad I have this coffee. That's made my day, right? And some days we just have days where we need to go be by ourselves and do this. But Here's what I think maybe Jesus might want to encourage us with. Hey, as I'm going to get this drink, is there anybody else I can think of in my world who I might need to get a drink for? Is there anybody I need to text right now and say, hey, can I get you a drink? I'm at this place. Can I get you a drink? Uh, Is there anybody in my life that maybe just needs a cup of coffee or a cup of tea right now? Pretty regularly on our staff team, 
when someone goes to coffee, in fact, I might even say it happens every time. It's just kind of part of the culture here. And I'm not saying because I did this, it's probably because Jesus did this, but for whatever reason, anytime anyone goes to, uh, goes to get coffee, it's like girls going to the restroom. We invite everybody else to go. You know this phenomena? Like you never see guys are like, I'm going to the restroom. Hey guys, you wanna come? They're like, sure, let's go, right? But for some reason, it's like, I got to go to the restroom and another girl's like, I'll go with you. And it's just like, it becomes this team thing. Well, the going to the restroom thing seems to happen for us with coffee, right? Someone's going to Starbucks. Hey, I'm going to Starbucks. Do you need me to get anything? Uh, Does anybody want anything? And very rarely are they like, I'll get you something, then I'll ask you to Venmo me later, right? It's just, uh, hey, I'm going. Can I bless you with a drink? I know I need something to drink right now. So I'm aware because I love all of you that you might need one too. And so I'm just asking. And there's something about this that invokes a kingdom kind of hospitality. And any of you who've ever had someone get a drink for you before know that there's some, I know it's a small thing, but it makes a big difference, right? Think about the last time someone brought you a drink. Wasn't it like the greatest thing ever? Like you were having a terrible day and someone's like, I know it's not much, but I got you a Diet Coke at McDonald's. And you're like, thank you. And then you ripped off the Monopoly tag. You're like, I didn't win, but it's McDonald's, right? You just felt like you just had the best day in the world. There's something about bringing somebody a drink that communicates the kingdom of Jesus. Part of the reason we provide free coffee in the back is because we wanna be hospitable. We wanna communicate something about the value system of the kingdom for everybody who comes here. Number two, second thing you do, you can include people in your friend group. Or as we say right here, we make room on the couch. We save seats at the table, right? So um, here's what I mean by this. I just think inclusion is a practice of the kingdom. Now, there are certainly times where you don't want to include people, right? If you're going to propose to your girlfriend and it's like a really intimate moment and your buddy's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? You're like, uh, I'm kind of busy, bro. It's like, okay, I see how you are. That's probably not a good time for you to like give into the passive aggressive nature and invite your buddy here because you show up and your girl's there and you're like, baby, um, hey, dude, can you scoot over? Baby, I want, like, that's probably not the moment to maybe do that. There's, there's some specific times where kind of exclusion temporarily might be necessary. Um, but in general, you include people in your friend group. And part of that's really small. When you're in a social situation and you see a new person show up, a good way to go is, hi, you know, my name is Doug. Nice to meet you. Cool. Okay, where are you from? Okay, cool. Awesome. Big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. And you walk away like that. But another way, very small, in a small way is to go, cool. Have you met so-and-so? Hey, so-and-so, come over here. This is so-and-so. He's from wherever. This is blah, blah, blah. And she's from wherever. You guys should meet. Hey. And you take this person and introduce them to everyone you know. And part of the reason you do that is because you are invoking the kingdom kind of hospitality here. You're including people in your friend group. Many of you are in life groups. And the reason I know that is because we have 47 life groups now, and it's like, I don't know, 400 people or something like that. And um, most of y'all are in that. And every so often we meet people, and they just, they don't really have a group. They just don't have any friends, or they don't have whatever. And that thought passes through your brain, like, I should invite this person to my group. And I think that would be a great uh, mental habit to stay in. Now, I think it would be important for you to go to your group and say, hey, I've got this friend she or he doesn't have a group, what would you guys think about it? 
And if your group says, we're okay with it, I think it'd be incredibly appropriate for you to begin inviting these kind of people into your groups. What's the worst that can happen? Your group grows and then you have to multiply. That's a great problem. We can help you do that. In general, for you to regularly get into the habit of inviting people into your friend groups, it, it just invokes the kingdom into that. And it's, it's I think, what Jesus would want. Number, number three, you can make someone a meal. If they're sick, they just had a baby, uh, if they, um, they're just having a bad week, um, just because, make them a meal. Now, it doesn't have to be an extravagant meal. But Jesus said, when, you're, when I was hungry, you fed me. Okay? And he doesn't have poor people in mind who don't have enough food. He's just saying, there was hunger. And you're like, oh, you're hungry? Cool. Well, here's food. I mean, that, that's, that's so easy. I mean, anyone can do it. Uh, just, just think about this. Um, you go to the store. You go to Publix. And you buy some pasta. And you buy some canned tomato sauce. And you bring them back to your house or apartment. And you set them on the counter. And then you literally turn on a water spigot. You didn't make water come through that. Jesus did. I mean, this is really amazing, okay? You pull out a pot and you go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's enough. Okay, and you turn it off and you set it down and you turn it on to high. And then you wait. And then it starts boiling and you open the package and you go, and you drop in. And then you go, hey, Siri, set a timer for 10 minutes. Setting the timer. <laughs> and then you take the can of tomato sauce and you open it and you get another little thingy out there and you pour it in and you go, and you literally look on your phone for 10 minutes, Instagram, just whatever. Oh girl, I can't believe you're wearing that and posting that picture, mm, right? For 10 minutes and then your timer's done. Siri, we got to stop this, seriously. Okay, thank you. <laughs> right, your timer's done, and then you take it, and you strain it, and you put it into a little to-go container, or you just take it as it is, and you go to someone's house, and you go, hey, spaghetti, psst, psst, right? Anyone can do this. I mean, I, what does it cost you? Ten bucks, maybe, right? We spend that at Chipotle three times a day, four if we're being honest, right? So just take one of your meals, go buy some spaghetti, go to someone's house, knock on the door. Hey, I heard you're having a bad day. You probably don't feel like eating. I made you this spaghetti. Do you remember the last time someone brought you food that they made? Do you remember how you felt? It's amazing, isn't it? It's like Christmas. Someone's like, hey, I just made these blueberry muffins. Thought you might want one. Who's going to be like, no, I don't want a blueberry muffin. I'm on Whole30. Nobody. <laughs> You're going to be like, yes, I want a blueberry muffin. And there's something about doing that that in, it just brings the kingdom of God into that relationship. So you make somebody a meal. Number four, you give away some unused clothing. Now, I'm not saying like your rattiest, nastiest stuff, although I'm aware that many of you wear jeans that look very ratty and nasty, and so maybe that's just the thing. Um, but I'm just saying, all of us have unused clothing. And we have friends who maybe need clothing. And I see this with girls all the time. They'll have these like clothing parties where like, let's get all of our old clothing and we'll put it in this one person's apartment and we'll all go in and like create a thrift shop moment. Like we literally put on Macklemore just on repeat and we go around and we thrift shop the whole time. What, 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 well, what, what, right? And we get our clothing and we, we swap. 
Do you remember the last time someone was like, oh, I have this shirt, it would be perfect for you. And they gave it to you and you're like, you're absolutely right, that would be perfect for me. And you just feel so good. It's like Christmas all over, it's better than Amazon, right? Now guys may not get this, because I don't know if guys do this. Here's what guys do. See, girls are open about the way they exchange clothing. Like they're like, oh girl, I have this top that'll go really well. Oh really, okay, cool, awesome, yeah. It's purple, I think it goes with your eyes. Oh, awesome, cool. You bring up, oh, that's amazing, oh, that's great, whatever. And then you take pictures and then you Instagram the next time you're out and you say, oh, that's really great, right? And there's this whole communication thing that happens around that. Here's what guys do. Guys are sitting there playing video games and they see the hoodie you're wearing and they're like, when he goes to the bathroom, I'm gonna steal that, right? <laughs> and he gets up and goes, spondu, right? And you put it in your backpack and you leave. Dude's never seen the hoodie before, like again, right? It's gone. And like you wear it out everywhere, you never Instagram about it. Because if he finds out, he's going to beat you up, right? This is how guys do things. So guys, um, I'm not saying you should have one of those conversations where you're like, oh, hey, dude, man, that jersey looks dope. Can I wear it? Like, and you're like oh, yeah, cool. Let me just give you the shirt off my back. Although Jesus did say that. So I'm just saying, when you see somebody who maybe has need or who, who maybe, I don't know, for whatever reason would benefit from some clothing that's yours, that's unused or unappreciated, and you, and you have an opportunity to give that away, that's great. It also does something else. Not only does it bring the kingdom of God to that relationship, but also communicates something to somebody, which is this. I love you more than I love these clothes. I remember I was working at this uh, camp when I was younger. And uh, there's this guy I worked with. He was super cool. He was the drummer in the worship band. And he wore this one brown shirt um, all the time, collared shirt. And I remember the first time he wore it, I was like, man, that is a sick shirt. He's like, oh, you like it? I was like, yeah, dude, that's awesome. Anyway, we just bonded over our camp experience. Uh, We worked together for a couple months. It was really awesome. And the very last day of camp, he came up to me. He's like, I have a present for you. And I was like, what is it? And he gave me the shirt. Now, he'd washed it, so just be cool. But he gave it to me. I wore that shirt for like seven years until it fell apart. And I just love that shirt. But I'll never forget what he said when he gave it to me. He gave it to me. I was like, why would you do this? And he goes, I love you more than I love this shirt. I was like, oh, my goodness. I've never felt more loved in my life than right now. And we all know that anytime someone gives us an article, there's something about it that just communicates, I love you and you matter and you matter to God. So we give people some unused clothing. Finally, it's this. Visit people who are sick or lonely. We visit people who are sick or lonely. The worst thing in the world is to be sick and to tell somebody you're sick and no one comes by. It's like you just have disappeared off the planet. And they're like, okay, well, what it communicates is I don't care about you. You got sick? Well, survival of the fittest, bro, right? <laughs> it's just what it, it's what it does. It communicates it to that person. And it's, it, the worst is when you're sick and people just leave you alone. Now, some of us, when we're sick, we like to be left alone, but it's because we can take care of ourselves. But in general, we want someone to come along and just kind of go, I'm sorry, you're sick. What can I do? Um, And loneliness is the same way. We got people who go through seasons of depression and, you know, you just kind of isolate yourself and you kind of stop showing up to life group. You stop showing up to the table. You stop showing up to your regular things. And the best thing we could do is reach out on the phone. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Everything okay? I miss you. I haven't seen you. And if they don't respond, you text back or you call. Um, and, And maybe what you do is you show up at their house if you have that kind of relationship and you knock on the door until they answer and you're like, hey, I just wanted to see you eyeball to eyeball. Are you okay? I love you. I just want to make sure 
you're okay. If you've ever been in one of those moments where you've been incredibly depressed or lonely or sick or you've just been one thing after another has kept you away from regular fellowship, typically what's going on there is you just have this overwhelmed sense that it's never going to get better. And someone, for someone to show up at your door and knock on it and text you and be like, hey, I missed you. I care about you. You matter to me. You matter to God. It's incredibly life-changing. And it, it, it communicates and invokes something of the kingdom of heaven and brings it on to earth. So the five things again, buy someone a drink, include people in your friend group, make someone a meal, give away some unused clothing, and visit people who are sick or lonely. So to review these questions, let me just review them here and then let me tell you guys one final story. What happens to me when I die? Well, Jesus says when we die, we enter into an eternal kind of existence. And there's two pathways. He's either going to make certain our following of him in eternal life or he's going to make certain our resistance of him in eternal punishment in a place called hell. And that's it. Number two. What in life can prepare me or prevent me from dying well? The difference between heaven and hell, the difference between dying well and dying not well is hospitality. Am I practicing the things of God, the things of scripture in the way that I love people and give up my life and serve them in ministry? The thing I've been hoping you understand this whole time is that hospitality is essentially ministry. That's what ministry is. Ministry, everything is ministry of hospitality. It's, it's making room for people and taking care of them. And is there any correlation between this life and the afterlife? Yes. Um, there's this famous movie called uh, Gladiator that came out, uh, I think, in 1999. I think that was Best Picture in 99. You guys remember this? Russell Crowe. If you haven't seen it, I'm not saying you should see this movie because Christian Liberties. But, you know, you can Google search it and read the Wikipedia article on it later. Anyway. But there's this great line in the very middle of it where Russell Crowe, as Maximus says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And I think he's mostly right there. The Bible seems to say this. What we do in life does echo in eternity, but it does so for different reasons. Because actually what we do in eternity echoes back into our life now. The way things are supposed to be in the kingdom create this ethical framework of how things are supposed to be. And our job is to be able to see that clearly and then try to live that out now in the way that we live. And the best way we can do that, the easiest way for us to do that, the simplest way for us to remember how to live out a kingdom moral framework is by simply loving one another, by being hospitable. And when we do this, we have the opportunity to bring a little bit of heaven to earth and to save people from hell and destruction. And let me tell you a story about how I've seen that happen here recently. Um, I'm going to take a drink of water, so apologies. Now, this friend named Maddie Mason, you may know him. He leads one of our, our guys' life groups here. Maddie Mason came here uh, to Orlando a couple of years ago for the Disney College program. Um, he's from Missouri. He likes the Cardinals in baseball. It's weird. Uh, I'm a Cubs fan, so that's weird to me. Um, but I asked Matt if I could share a little bit about his story. So I, w- I want you to kind of go back with me. Here's Matt's story. Matt's mom is a prostitute, and his dad is a really bad kind of gangster-type person who I think is in prison for murdering several people. And Matt was born into this uh, basically prostitution house and grew up there where his mom had this business and basically just grew up in the streets of Kansas City doing his own thing. And I would ask him, like, how did you get food? He's like, well, we would steal food. And 
Like, how did you survive? He's like, well, we just kind of figured out things to do. And he's basically walking the streets, getting abused by people, getting into drugs. I mean, by the time he's like four, five, six, my, my kid's age, just in Kansas City, in the worst part of Kansas City, growing up in this life. And he's a statistic at this point. If you've ever looked at this, he should end up in jail or dead or in something much, much worse. And when he was, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, gets put into the foster care system in Kansas City, and it's just, it's just a bad situation. From the, no disrespect to the foster care system, but you guys know how the stories go. He's abused. It's just, it's just rough. He does not have a great childhood. And about the time he's 9, 10, or 11, this, I'm trying to say this the, the funniest way possible, um, <laughs> a prototypical conservative Lily White Christian pastor and his wife and like three or four kids decides to adopt him and his little sister and bring them into their family in the suburbs, like in a suburb of, uh, of kind of the Kansas City area. Like, I mean, you think about this guy, old white guy wearing like a plaid shirt, like maybe grew up on the farm milking cows and was like, I'm gonna adopt this kid and bring him into my family. And this kid like is the son of a prostitute who's like from the streets, like, you just see the situation, you go, this is not going to work out. Bless your heart, conservative white family. Like, you, like I don't know what your motivation is, but I, I, just, I don't know, buddy. Like, you just think about it. Like, that's his thing. And you're not going to believe this, but that family brought the kingdom of heaven into Matt's life. And they practiced hospitality. They just loved him. And... They, they were high invitation, come into our family. They were high challenge. We want you to live this way because we think God has something better for you. They just loved him and loved him and loved him and loved his sister and loved him and loved him and loved him. And eventually, Matt came to believe in Jesus and that family. And he kind of got his life together. And he graduated high school and he went to college and he kind of figured out what God might want him to do. And he graduated from college. And after he did that, he came here for the Disney college program because Disney, right? And... When he got here, he was just this always talking bundle of energy. If you've ever met Matt, you kind of look at him because, you know, he's kind of light-skinned but still kind of dark-skinned. And you see him, and he's, he's like, yoked, like, because he's from the streets of Kansas City. Like, you can tell he's very tough-looking. But he talks, he's like, hi, I'm Matt Mason. Nice to meet you. And you're like, whoa, what just happened here? Like, I wasn't expecting that. And you just can tell he's got this story here. Anyway, so he moves here. And he just tells me this is his story. He's been transformed by the hospitality of this family. Now think about the story I just described to you about him growing up. Doesn't that sound a lot like hell on earth? Abuse, prostitution, murder, drugs, having to survive, being scared, not knowing what you're going to do. That's hell on earth. And then his family brought heaven to earth in the way that they practice hospitality for Matt. But the story doesn't end there. Because when Matt got here, one of the first things he did is he met this guy named Ryan, who's in our ministry. And Ryan grew up in a home in Mississippi, grew up in a wheelchair, has cerebral palsy. And I mean, the first week Matt is here, he comes to First Orlando and is like, I love this place. I'm going to go there every Sunday. And then the next week he meets Ryan and Ryan goes, hey, I'm in a wheelchair. I'd love to go to church somewhere. I have a van that will bring me here, but I have nobody to drive me. And Matt's like, I'll drive you. And so Matt texts me. I've known him for a week. He's like, hey, I'm bringing this guy to church with me. I think you should meet him because let's go ahead and make sure we include him. He's practicing inclusion. He's practicing hospitality. So he brings Ryan to church. 
and Ryan loves it. He gets plugged in, and we meet, and he hangs out, and these guys kind of join small groups and things like that, and the Disney ministry, and they're having a good time. And in the process of Ryan coming here and Matt being his friend, Ryan becomes a Christian, and we get the honor of baptizing Ryan. And Ryan goes through a discipleship process with us. And in the process of going through a discipleship kind of situation with us, Ryan goes, hey, you know what? I think I want to live out a life of ministry. And we're like, great. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that Ryan can do this. And so Ryan's going about just doing his thing. And all of a sudden new people come into Disney. And so one of these days, Ryan goes, hey, I got this friend and she's not a Christian, but I really want to start bringing her to church with me. You think that'd be okay? And I'm like, that's great. Now, Ryan, who has been shown incredible hospitality, is now showing incredible hospitality to someone else. The kingdom of heaven made its way into Matt Mason's parents' family and therefore made its way into Matt Mason's life and therefore made its way into Ryan's life and therefore made its way into his new friend's life. Hospitality is the difference between heaven or hell because it brings a little bit of the kingdom of heaven into people's lives and shows them what they could enjoy for eternity. And so the next time you have this thought go through your mind, oh, I should bring that guy a drink. Oh, no, it's not that big a deal. Guess what? It is that big a deal. And the next time someone's like, man, I'm really hungry, and you're like, I could cook them some food. Ah, oh, I may not buy their meal. It's not that big of a deal. It is that big of a deal. And the next time someone's sick, and you're like, oh, I should go over and see them. It's that big a deal. And the next time one of your girlfriends or guy friends is like, oh, that shirt looks cute. And you go, oh, I should give it to them. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Guess what? It is that big of a deal. Hospitality is the difference between heaven and hell, both in this life and the life to come. And when we practice it, Jesus does incredible, creepy Jesus, magical kind of things to transform people from a life of hell to a life of heaven so they can experience heaven forever. Let me pray for us.